listeners. Thanks for joining us again on Yaaha with Lisa. And Phil. And our co-host, Aaron. Our guest this week is the writer of Cold Water Revenge. His name is James Ross. Welcome, James. Um, he's written a number of books. Well, let's get into it. Okay. Yeah. So, right. uh, so we'll start with uh, Hunting Teddy Roosevelt. Oh, cool. So, so basically it starts out with... Um, J.P. Morgan, and he's he's afraid that Teddy Roosevelt's going to come back and run for a third term, which turned out later that he would. But he brought in some other you know, industrialists. He brought in Andrew Carnegie and William Randolph Hearst, and they uh, I guess they helped finance the safari to Africa for Teddy and Kermit Roosevelt and their gang of merry people. Well, maybe it'd be helpful if I just give you the quick background of the story and. Um how it came about, set up the characters and, and uh, um, lead in that way because the, the, how, how it came about is almost as fascinating as the story. Um, if that works for you. Yeah. I, I wanted to get into Nellie Bly a little bit mm-hmm. and you know a lot about the Congo. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, just quickly, um, I was doing some research um, uh, for, for a book, uh, that became Hunting Teddy Roosevelt. And uh, I ran across a small blurb in a 1909 Italian newspaper that reported that the Naples police had taken an anarchist off of the ship carrying Roosevelt to Africa uh, and uh, charged him with trying to stab Roosevelt. Um, and, um, you know, I've got a decent education and uh, I, never heard of that uh, assassination attempt. And the more research I did, uh, uh, the more it became evident that it is nowhere else in the uh, newspaper accounts at the time, nor in the history books, nor in any of the biographies. Just this one little blurb in the Naples newspaper from March 1909. So that leads to two interesting questions, which uh, I try to answer in the book and which will lead into, I think, your questions. One, um, you know, how is it possible to suppress a attempted assassination of a public figure like Teddy Roosevelt, who had the power uh, to do such a thing at that time? Why would they do it? And then secondly, you know, Roosevelt was on his way to Africa after his second term in office because he had committed to following George Washington's example of not running for a third consecutive term, underscore the the word consecutive. Uh, But he didn't say he wasn't coming back. So, you know, who at that time would have the temerity basically to hedge their bets that he doesn't come back and run again? Because Roosevelt has spent his first two terms busting the chops of Wall Street, breaking up monopolies, then called trusts. And there was a core group of people who didn't want to see him come back. So my candidate for who did it or who tried to do it is J.P. Morgan et al. And I, I think the, the research I did backs up, you know, the, the assertion that the, um, the story was suppressed by William Randolph Hearst, who was kind of the Rupert Murdoch of his time, wanted to run for president himself, didn't want to give Roosevelt any publicity for something as, as, uh, you know, heartrending as a, an attempted assassination. And instead, his newspapers during that period are all full of stories about Roosevelt, the animal killer. So that, yeah. And the other piece, I think, as many people know, Morgan and Rockefeller together had bought, literally bought the 1900 convention that nominated William McKinley with Roosevelt as his vice president. And McKinley was pro-business. And unfortunately, McKinley got assassinated himself six months into his term and Roosevelt became president. It'd be sort of like Joe Biden and, and uh, Ozio Cortez running together, the opposite ends <laughs> of the party. Yeah. Rockefeller and Morgan paid for Joe Biden. They got Ocasio Cortez and they didn't want to see him back. So with that, that's how the book came about. Without his background, there's you know plenty of historical research about um, Rockefeller, Morgan, Nellie Bly, et al. Uh, in the book, and I'd be happy to flush that out. Yes. So uh, Nellie Bly basically. Uh, Maggie Dunn's just a surrogate Nellie Bly here that was, um, I guess, Teddy Roosevelt's fictional teenage sweetheart. Uh, yes, fictional. 
and she uh, becomes she becomes a journalist and becomes famous for uh, exposing uh, abuses in mental institutions. Mm-hmm. And William Randolph Hearst hires her to go to Africa and you know write stories and report back on Teddy Roosevelt, but she runs into a series of problems that I you know don't necessarily want to spoil. But um, he 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 referenced at one point, you know, some he, they told Maggie, oh, do you, you know, is this it's worth it to you just to run off and be Nellie Bly to do this? And that's when I realized, oh, she she actually, you know, he pointed me that that direction. I had to go do a little research, and I'm like, well, she is actually basically Nellie Bly, which was very she's cool. a combination in, in, the, in of course a fictional character, mm-hmm. but of the journalistic. Um, career and escapades of Nellie Bly, as well as the African adventurers, um, uh, uh, whose quotes are all throughout the book. Yeah, the beginning um, of the chapters. Mary Kingsley, who who wrote some great um, books about a, you know, a female solo adventurer in Central Africa at the turn of the century. And you know, just doing research into that period to find out you know, some of the basic things like, you know, what, what would a woman wear, you know, getting off a boat in Mombasa and tramp, you know, tramping by foot across Central Africa in search of Teddy Roosevelt? You know, how would they travel? What would they problems would they run into? Why would they do it, etc.? cetera? Uh, it took those a combination of those two characters, real life characters, to, um, you know, to flush out that picture. Both of them fascinating. Now, uh, I have a question about something you said, um, that um, Hearst was uh, kind of concentrating on portraying him as an animal killer. Yeah. Was that, I know that today, uh, big game hunter is definitely not okay. But back then, were people, did people find that distasteful at that time? Or did they find it like uh, salacious and adventurous? No, I, I think uh, at the time it was well understood that Teddy Roosevelt was doing a tremendous public service. He, he w- the purpose of the safari museum pieces was to fill the the museums of the you know the teeming immigrant cities of New York, Boston, Chicago with things that would interest school children and educate them that they would never otherwise see. And his family, his Roosevelt's family, had been a founding uh, of the New York Museum of Natural History. And they actually funded the expansion of the museum to house all the uh, game species that uh, he brought back. But his deal with the various museums of the time was that they kept these African exhibits uh, in constant circulation. And so that, you know, kids who otherwise would have no exposure to yeah, anything like that would have a place in their city to you know go spend time. Yeah, in any Africa. exhibits not not being exhibited at the time, yeah, have to be sent around the country yeah, to other right. museums. That's really cool. I really want to read that that book that you quote so often from him, uh, African Game Trails. Game Trails. It's probably the best safari book ever written. Roosevelt could write. I mean, it, back in in his day, there were no such things as presidential pensions. So he had to make a living after he uh, finished his term. And he made a living both before and afterwards by writing. And he was a tremendous writer. And um, yeah, in his party, um, I guess it's there was Heller who was the actual taxidermist. And yes. Cunningham was the the guide. Yes. I, I inferred that from one of the quotes at the beginning of the chapters. Right. Um, was uh Potter was it Jack Potter was he real? No, he was not. Okay. The the um the challenge in this kind of fiction is well, there's two two principal challenges. One is to get the history in without slowing down the narrative. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I learned that by doing a lot of uh, oral storytelling here in Jackson, Wyoming, where you know we we have these storytelling contests, and I'll get up in front of an audience, and if I set a story in, say, my youth, the Vietnam War generation, and mm-hmm. uh, reference the people from that time, like, say, Ho Chi Minh, the uh, head of, you know, the North, uh, North Vietnam at the time, 
my audience doesn't know that. They, I say Ho Chi Minh, they think it's an entree at the local Thai restaurant. So to, you know, flesh my stories out, I got to get the story in without slowing down the narrative. And for this book, Hunting Teddy Roosevelt, there's a tremendous amount of history. So one way you get it in is with these ancillary characters like John Potter. Yeah. And the, the other utility of those is you, as a writer, you can't always be inside your character's head. It gets yeah. a little boring. Uh, in, you know, in, in, uh, in film, for example, the uh, point of view is always the camera and the, right. you know, the audience follows the, the camera and sees what's happening. In fiction, the point of view switches from character to character. And if you've got a principal storyteller, whether, whether it's Maggie or Roosevelt himself or Kermit, you can't always be in their thoughts. You gotta, so you have, you know, you give them a, basically a pal. You know, Roosevelt talks to Kermit. You know, uh, Maggie talks to, you know, the priest character. Potter talks to Roosevelt, et cetera. And in those little triangles, um, you substitute for the, the camera point of view without getting bogged down in just characters ruminating and, you know, pouring the bejesus out of everybody. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so the I, safari I, was no small thing. I mean, it, it was like a year that they were gone. And- it was the largest safari ever undertaken to that time. And the largest one since Stanley discovered Livingston, air quotes, uh, back in 1873, I think it was. It was huge, 260 men, 20 tons of supplies and equipment, all on foot. Yeah, um, yeah it was a beast. So they're off the grid for, for that amount of time. You're talking about a former president that's basically gone, you know, adventuring and is almost in. He, yeah, almost he, he winds up in German territory a few times. Yeah. Well, that's what makes the, Paul von Leto Vorbeck. Vorbeck, a real character. Yeah. Yeah. The Lion of Africa. He also, Vorbeck himself wrote a fascinating book about that period. He was, um, um, you know, he was the guerrilla commander of the German forces in uh, German uh, East Africa during World War I. Basically lived off the land. He um, armed a uh, native army to the consternation of his British neighbors and Together with a small number of German non-commissioned officers, he basically kept the British on the run the entire war uh, and was never defeated. I mean, you think about, okay, so he's got 260 men with him, but still he's isolated himself. Uh, And and now let me ask, did he bring 250 men or was it a No, they're all, most of those men were uh, porters who, you know, carried 40 pound loads on their heads, on their head every day, Yeah, every day. There was probably a a core of about 10 to 15 Americans, most of them Smithsonian employees whose task was to preserve the game animals that uh, Kermit and uh, Roosevelt shot. Were there actually Pinkertons there? There was not. Okay. But he was particularly up. vulnerable to some, like if, if, if there was to be a, a assassination plot hatched, you know, this would be the opportunity to act on it, it would seem, because he's like, you know, pretty much, like I said, off yeah. the grid. Yeah. And he actually, there were two assassination attempts. The one that most people know about. The one that he, ends the book in Milwaukee. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, it, it was dangerous times. And as he himself points out at some point in the book, during his lifetime, there had been four presidential assassinations, yeah. uh, Lincoln, Garfield, wow. McKinley. And, you know, he was going to be number uh, four attempts, three of them successful. So violent times. So are you uh, a big Teddy Roosevelt, for lack of a better word, fan or a uh, historian? Absolutely. I mean- Absolutely. He's one of the most fascinating and competent um, presidents that, that we've had. Uh, multilingual, um, uh, yeah, probably underrated as a, um, a peacemaker. You know, his, his, um, his known for the phrase, speak softly, but carry a big stick. But he personally negotiated the treaty between Japan and Russia to end the their little war in 1905. I think 
had he been successful in his run for a third term, there would not have been a World War I because he was perfectly capable of negotiating with basically the goes great. The, the, the proposal that I've outlined, you know, it's a fictional uh, proposal uh, in the book, basically giving Germany the Congo, taking it away from Belgium, giving, you know, giving them the Liebenstrom they're looking for without kicking off a European war. That's right up Roosevelt's alley, the kind of thing he not only would have thought of, could have, but could have had the stature to accomplish. You know, the world would be a much different place, I believe, if uh, he'd won that third term. The only reason he he was considering that third term was because he was grossly underwhelmed with William Howard Taft, who he kind yes. of, you know, he made a deal with Taft, and Taft Renewed. went his own way. Yeah, I mean Taft was from the business side of the party. He wasn't a, a, the kind of what we would now call a progressive. Cincinnati's own, I believe. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. we're responsible for that one. Yeah, so sorry. Well, on well, when he when he allowed. Yeah, lo- the logging concessions to start logging Yellowstone while Roosevelt was off in Africa. That set Teddy off the edge. It's like enough is enough. As it should. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. So I I read back in high school, Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad. Oh, yeah. And that has a lot of the monstrosities in, mm-hmm. in the Congo. Was that also King Leopold II? That was Leopold as well, yeah. That Conrad's story. So, he, so that continues into you know decades later, you know, twelve, fifteen yeah. years. Mm-hmm. Wow! And uh, yeah. he basically would f- force the natives to uh, farm rubber, mm-hmm. and if they didn't cut enough rubber, he'd cut their hands off. Yeah. He. he uh, we don't know how many people died in that period, but it could be as many as ten million. Yeah, wow. that's wow. Atrocities. Yeah. Wow. yeah, I mean that's a serial killer. And he was doing it from the eighteen hundreds to the nineteen teens, at, at least. Mm-hmm. Wow. Eighteen nineties, eighteen eighties. Who knows? I don't know when it started. Was was he? Where was? Where did he start from? America? Was He's he Bel- Belgian? Belgian. Okay. Well, at least it was Europe, not America, this time. But... King King Leopold II of Belgium. Oh, okay. Yeah, he had personal control over what's now the Congo parts and you know parts of other neighboring states, and mm-hmm. not and and exploited it as a a vast uh, plantation. And unfortunately, his neighbors who could have stopped him were busy preparing for war with each other, you know, France and Germany. So they let him get away with it, and uh, it wasn't really until uh, towards the end that. Uh, he was forced to turn over his personal kingdom to the Belgian government. And then there began some modicum of you know, colonial administration that was less than genocidal. But mm-hmm. uh, when I lived in the Congo in the mid 70s, they still had horrific memories of that period. And, uh, you know, a lot of issues with the Belgian colonial administration that followed it's it was then and still is now a pretty brutal part of the world and part of that reason is leopold's history wow interesting um so you can start to see a profile from your interests and things that you've written about and stuff Mm -hmm. it gives an indication of why you were drawn maybe to the peace corps you know to to volunteer for the peace corps because you're the second person we've had on that's been you know, in the Peace Corps. Mm-hmm. So we know a little bit about it. You know, John Kennedy yeah. introduced mm-hmm. it, I think, in 63, in fact, I, was that Was she our first podcast? One of our first podcasts was with a lady who wrote a memoir about being in the very beginning of the Peace Corps when they still hadn't really gotten things settled and you had to pay your own way to travel, um, you know, yeah. So maybe talk a little bit. Before we get on to the next book, uh-huh. maybe talk a little bit about that uh, point in your life, because it seems like that may have shaped um, you intellectually and what you've become as a writer. Um, that period. Uh, it certainly was one of those, you know, uh, life defining experiences, although I, I can't say I did it initially out of 
altruism. I did it because I needed a job. It was 1975, right after the second Arab oil embargo. And there were just no jobs. And I was uh, in school at the time. And I, I went by the, the administration building. And there was a long line outside of kids, you know, waiting to get in. And I don't know what it was about. It was also a place where they saw, sold concert tickets. So I, you know, I asked somebody, I asked Led Zeppelin in or something, you know, where do you get tickets? And it was like, no, there's actually, you know, a recruiter in there from IBM. And, you know, there's 300 people lined up waiting to see him. Well, yeah, I didn't like lines then. I don't like them now. So I, I went down to the student union, you know, um, thinking, you know, that, okay, I'm a senior now. Maybe I should be looking for a job. And I ran into this guy who was standing behind a green table with a poster behind him of Fiji in the then uniform of, you know, dark green poncho, beard, long hair, et cetera. And he was the Peace Corps recruiter. And, you know, I looked at this poster behind him of, you know, white sand beach and palm trees. And uh, we started a conversation. He said, yeah, you can go there, you know, sign up here. So I did. And, of course, it was bait and switch. And they sent me to the Congo instead. Oh, they sent you to the Congo. I didn't realize you were in the Congo in the Peace Corps. (laughs) So that began my great adventure with Africa. I taught school there for uh, in two different places. Uh, War broke out. The first year I was there and uh, I had some amazing adventures then. And uh, if you've been on my website, I've, I've told a story from Wath Radio about uh, getting my then wife, my then girlfriend and later wife out of the Congo, you know, ahead of a marauding group of rebels who were uh, mm-hmm. intent on seizing the capital. So um, yeah, it was, it was a fascinating and dangerous time. Now, was your wife with the Peace Corps? Was she? No. She was a lady adventurer along the lines oh, okay. of Nellie Bly and uh, uh, Mary Kingsley. And when I joined the Peace Corps, she was from Western New York. And uh, okay. it took her took her a year, but she, on her own, got herself to Africa and joined me in the Congo just in time for the ship to hit the fan. That begs the question, where are you from originally? Or I'm from uh, prior, to, prior to the Peace Corps. So you're from New York State as well. I'm from New York State as well, yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I watched the, uh, the video of you uh, going into detail about that situation in the Congo. And it got pretty hairy. And you had to yes. kind of negotiate, do some diplomacy to get, uh, and, and you felt a degree of responsibility for her being there and being in harm's way. And, you, and it was interesting how you were able to uh, get out of that uh, situation. It was a stroke of undeserved luck. <laughs> Uh, combined with youthful youthful ignorance and uh, somebody looking out for the both of us. It, it's not something, it's not a place I'd recommend to the faint of heart or, you know, yeah. that. Yeah. It, it's a video worth watching. Actually, that I, I appreciate anybody who's seen it to give me some feedback on whether they think there's a book there because I've always wanted to write that story in book form. And I'm not quite sure there's enough, but if there is, it's it's definitely what I want to write. Right. Well, I mean, I find the fact that you joined the Peace Corps because the line was short could be the beginning because that's that's funny. It adds it interjects a bit of humor. Um, you know, you could have gone to IBM, but no, you went to the Peace Corps because oh, yeah. there was nobody in front of you. That would be a good way. Pretty much. Way into the movie. Yeah. You know? And, um, you know, and, and it doesn't just have to be about like, you know, you can also be like a private Benjamin moment. I mean, I think you can (laughs) all, I, yeah, it sounds like your whole Peace Corps experience instead of just that negotiating moment, um, Mm -hmm. you know, could be put in there. And even to the extent of, uh, like, you know, uh, how that moment led you to writing some of your books like for instance um do you feel that you have a connection to teddy roosevelt because you were able to negotiate so well to save your and your wife's lives you know the roosevelt connection came about in an odd way i had uh 
a meeting with my then agent about this next book we'll talk about, Cold Water Revenge, where I we're supposed to have a, a signing with one of the major publishers. But this was uh, 2009, right after the financial crash and the publishing industry was in disarray and uh, the publisher backed out. So, um, you know, he sat me down. He had this great office in midtown Manhattan. Looked like Dumbledore's library, you know, wall to ceiling books, fireplace, all that sort of thing. And he said, look, you know, uh, if you were a Kennedy or a New York ball player, we could take this further. But, you know, right now that that book's dead, we, we need to start on your next one. So we started kicking around ideas. And he had this, for want of a better word, formula for commercial bestsellers and included exotic locale larger than life character, world stakes, etc. And we started kicking around, okay, exotic locale. I want to write a book set in the Congo, you know, where I've, you know, spent a formative part of my youth. Larger than life character. I met a lot of the larger than life characters uh, in that that place and time when I was working after the Peace Corps with CBS News. Uh, so like Idi Amin and General Babutu and those kind of guys. And, you know, and that, and that's basically the genesis of, of how it happened. I, I couldn't quite twig what I would write about in terms of, you know, Idi Amin et al., although those are, he's a colorful guy. But when I ran across Roosevelt's safari book, it all came together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the world stakes of the course is, you know, World War One, and can, you know, can that be head off? by Roosevelt winning the third term. Um, that's So let's go ahead and take a break right here for our sponsor. And then when we come back, we'll talk about Cold Water Revenge, the second. Sounds good. So thanks uh, for joining us again, listeners. And we're still speaking to James Ross. And um, we've spoken to him about uh, Hunting Teddy Roosevelt, uh, a book that he wrote about Teddy Roosevelt's safari in the Congo. And we are speaking to him right now somewhat about the Peace Corps. Well, we're going to move on to his newest book. And it's the first of at least two parts. Is it going to be a trilogy, Jim, or? It is a trilogy. I just delivered book number two um, last week, and it'll be coming out in April. And I'm starting on book number three because I foolishly signed a three book contract to produce a book a year for three years, which I will never, ever do again. Yeah, I don't blame Uh, you. It's sort of it's sort of like having that college thesis hanging over your head every year for three years in a row. Um, You know, fortunately, uh, the first book, which is out, has won a number of of awards, as did Hunting Teddy Roosevelt. So, um, you know, it's been very well received. But Mm -hmm. the first book is Cold Water Revenge. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. And uh, Cold Water Confession, the second book, will be out in April. Um, There's a there's a lot of I read Cold Water Revenge um, and uh, there's a lot of confession in that, but it's it's yanked out. You know, it's it's forced confession. Is there in Coldwater Confession or in the third book, will the will there be more redemption for Tom's family? Um, the story arc that I have in mind uh, uh-huh. is this. Without a spoiler. The, without a spoiler. Without, uh, without first, a spoiler. Yeah. The first book is from primarily from the older brother's point of view, Tom Morgan, the Wall Street lawyer who's ambivalent about uh, uh, his single-minded pursuit of uh, white-collar wealth and his uh, discomfort with the, you know, the corrupt criminal background of his law enforcement family. And, you know, the first book works through some of that dynamic, but he's not, you know, he's not where he's ultimately going to be. Book number two is from the younger brother's point of view, Joe, the sheriff who's completely at home being the cock of the walk in the little town, just like his father was before him. But he's brutal, corrupt, and content with who he is. And uh, the third book is going to be the confrontation that between the brothers that resolves which direction, if any, this family is going, whether uh, they stay together, split apart, whether 
you know, mm-hmm. whether both brothers survive or not, I haven't quite yet uh, decided. But it, the the story arc is the family dynamic. Uh, one one brother trying to rise above his raising, and the other perfectly happy to you know stay where he is. And and uh, you know the tension between them and and the uh, and the violence. Now there's a there's a little bit of a, a major tease for me. Um, does Coldwater Confession or the third book uh, will it touch on the trauma that caused the son? The, uh, the nephew to not talk it will the, it will reappear in the third book yes okay good because i do want to know what happened yes you will find out okay are there is it a possibility to go beyond three books or are you strictly ending it at a trilogy um it i will leave it open-ended uh because the writing world is what it is and if somebody wants to make it worth my while there'll be a fourth fifth and sixth yeah. Remember my, Douglas uh, Adams' fourth book in the Hitchhiker's Guide thing was the fourth book in the trilogy. Yeah, yeah, the um, Bulgarian is a five book trilogy as well. If you haven't read the, Bulgarian, they call it that the five book trilogy. Huh? Yeah, the Bulgarian. I'm going to take an assignment. I will take a break after book three to write the Africa book I talked about, based okay. on the moth story, and uh, put out a collection of short stories. And then but you won't be if, committed to a book a year for a while. Right. That, yeah. And, and quality is important. I mean, the first book in the series I worked on for over 10 years. You know, the second one took, uh, because I, I had already had them in the, my trunk basically when I signed the three book contract. The second book took three years altogether. The third one is the one that's going to be, have to be finished in like 11 months. And my concern is quality, because as most writers know, your first draft is garbage and the real writing comes in the editing and the reflection and more editing. And uh, I I want as a, you know, a, a, a caring professional to um, put in the time necessary to produce a quality product. There There are some people who can. You know, write quickly, but um, if you're not one of them, then the tension becomes the calendar versus you know the quality you desire to produce. Mm-hmm. Kind of like the reason why most uh, movie sequels are um, garbage. Well, certainly if they're Russian, they are. Right, you know? and they usually um, are. Yeah. You know, Hollywood wants you to get that out, get that out, get that out. Take advantage of that money. Take advantage of that money. I'd rather wait a few years. I mean, I think American Idol is kind of it, it, my theory with American Idol is it should have been every two to three years. That way they had time to actually make the idol an idol. Well, it's only been around mm-hmm. for like 15 years. And yet they but there's have like, like 50, 50 seasons. seasons. So they're not doing it year. Yeah, right year. no, it no, it's ridiculous. Month. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to know I had a question. Now, I, I, it's not that I didn't read any. I read some of the book, a cross section mm-hmm. of the book. And I got uh, a feel for your writing and it was very, uh, I want to know how much the location of the book, upstate New York on the border, Canadian border, um, how, how big of a character was the location? Because I, that's, you've lived there as well, right? I mean, so. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, in this genre, the, the mystery genre, uh, location mm-hmm. and ambience uh, are crucial. Many of the best known series uh, would not be series if they didn't have that atmospheric draw. You know, people read mysteries for lots of different reasons, but it includes um, finding themselves in a place, a setting uh, that they would never, not otherwise ever you know, be, be in uh, and that they find interesting. So you have like the Longmire series set out in my neck of the woods here in Wyoming, you know, that that's gotta be the wind river Indian reservation of Wyoming. (laughs) We we have the, yeah, he has a shirt uh, for the, uh, the, the, the bar. Yeah. The, the cafe, the red. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I can't think of it right now. You know, where, uh, where Lou Diamond Phillips says, uh, thank you for calling. I can't read his catchphrase. We've got that t-shirt. Yeah. Um, well, that's the reason for 
you know, the, lo- the, the location. And um, uh, it's loosely modeled after the town I grew up in and the car- as are the characters. And, um, but um, I've moved it farther north than, um, than the town I grew up in for, you know, plot purposes to get it closer to um, that French international Quebec. flavor going. Right. Um, but yeah, uh, the, the location is Kate. So I, I can almost see, I can almost see, uh, you know, from your descriptions here and talking about it, it, it would make an intriguing potential uh, series for HBO or something like that. You know, mm-hmm. From your mouth to God's ears. <laughs> Done. <laughs> that would be cool. We'd definitely watch, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, but mm-hmm. so I'm wondering, there was a, there was a uh, saying or, or something that, what is cabin fever storytelling? Uh, it's a local um, uh, storytelling competition here in Wyoming uh, during the winter where, as I said, we usually have about 10 feet of snow. Uh, people get cabin fever. And, um, you know, back in the day, they, if they could make their way into town, you know, to hang out at the, you know, get supplies and so forth. And uh, there grew up around that a uh, storytelling tradition where people gather uh, in the local bars uh, and tell stories. And uh, it's become institutionalized here during the winter. So once a month uh, at the Rose Bar here in Jackson, uh, you can show up, put your name in the hat. And if your name gets drawn, you tell a story based on that evening's theme you don't get to tell you know so you, have to, so you have to improvise well you know the theme ahead of time uh but uh yeah you, you get up there do you, do you bring notes or is this no, all no props no notes you just get up behind the microphone cool. and uh if the theme for the night is i think i've got a couple of videos up there scar um you know is one of the um you you tell your story and then uh, the uh, judges vote and the first prize is usually a large uh, pepperoni pizza from Pinky G's Pizzeria. Woohoo! Uh, and uh, um, and I think everybody gets a uh, all the storytellers get a free ticket for a slice of pizza. So it's it's um, you know big time storytelling. Big stage. Yeah, but it's yeah. great practice yeah. for writing. I see it on the performances page, live performances. Yeah. Sharing, scar, and mistake are the three. Yes, cabin fever. See, I can't, Story slam competition. I can't think yeah. of anything like that here. That it's, mm. it's almost like a combination between stand up and beat poetry or something. And mm. you know, um, it, it's just it, it's intriguing to me that uh, that something like that. It, it, it doesn't seem it seems to be contained in Wyoming or the West or wherever you're mm-hmm. at these ca- what you call cowboy bars. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a long history of tall tale telling out in the West and this yeah. is, just continues it. But I would have to say that from the perspective of a fiction writer, the practice of uh, sp- t- telling tales in front of a live audience is invaluable because as a writer, you know, you can spend years at your computer uh, mm-hmm. producing, you know, three, four hundred page tome. You have no idea whether, you know, it's going to be well received or not. Is compared it to feedback, yeah. yeah. Compared to the instantaneous feedback you get in live storytelling, which you will hone if you're, you know, you've got your eyes and ears open, will hone your style to, um, you know, make it more uh, easily accessible. Uh, yeah, no. yeah. I, I I found it just invaluable to um, helping me uh, with the longer works of fiction. Now, what what comes to my mind with that is Prairie Home Companion. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Harrison Killer. Absolutely, it's absolutely like that. Except he comes well prepared. Uh, yeah. He's got notes, and, and those those stories are extremely polished. Well, yeah, because he's putting them out to the world. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas yeah, you're, I love them out, you're, 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 you've got pizza at stake. He's got, yeah. you know, listen. Yeah. But also, but also they've got no notes. Yeah. <laughs> Garrison uh, has notes. Right. Right. Garrison has probably a script. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hmm. 
But you know what? It, I wonder, does it ever, is it ever like uh, the Apollo theater? Uh, like if, if you if you come if you come and you bomb, I mean, did the did the Cowboys? They blew you off the stage. And- <laughs> like it, it's a it's a polite audience, but um, and it's you know it's it's amateur hour too. I, I think I'm probably one of the few regular storytellers who's also uh, now a professional writer. Um, mm-hmm. It's a, a lot of stories about drunken ski parties and you know. Uh, misadventures in the mountains and, and so forth. But there's a certain um, spontaneity and um, you know, veracity to the, you know, the local tall tale. I, I enjoy it tremendously. Yeah. Well, the, there's the excitement and courage of getting up on the stage, especially for someone who may not have done it before or who doesn't feel like they're a professional per se. Do you have a significant number of regulars or um, I would say there are a few local storytellers who um, consistently can put up a good tale. Now their name doesn't always get drawn from the hat. So, oh, okay. a, so you don't necessarily go. You can go pro- now, you, you know, say the theme for the night is say scar uh-huh. and you put your, you know, your, your name in the hat. And if it gets drawn, you get up there and tell a story that somehow involves a scar. And you may have played, you know, may have told the story a thousand times. You may have just, you know, figured it out that week. But unless your name gets pulled, you know, it doesn't get told. So there's a regular group of folks who um, are, are uh, interested, in, who put their name in the hat and can tell a good story. And, but, you know, sadly, they don't always get called. Mm. Yeah. Oh, okay. wow. So it, 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 there's a lot more that we could go on about, but um, I think at this point, Lisa, why don't you go ahead with your customary question? Okay. Um, Jim, is there anything that we did not ask you that you expect to be asked or anything that you don't normally get asked that you would want to be asked? Well, you know, the, the from point of view, I think of any writer who uh, appears on a program like this is your goal is to increase the size of your audience. So you want to be asked about, you know, where can my books be found? Uh, you know, what's my website, my links, um, and so forth. Uh, so I would love to, you know, just take the opportunity to say, if you, you know, would like to get a copy of <coughs> two fine multiple award-winning books, Hunting mm-hmm. Teddy Roosevelt or Cold Water Revenge. Uh, go to Amazon, type in my name, James Ross or James A. Ross, um, and, or the name of the book, Hunting Teddy Roosevelt or Cold Water Revenge, and um, buy a copy. And if you want to hear, you know, live performances, get links to my short stories, and um, you know, learn more about uh, my work, go to my website, JamesRossAuthor.com. Yeah, links to all the books are on your website and yes. you, you can pre-order the new one too. Yeah. Uh, that's actually uh, the socials is Philip's final question. Usually. And now you've, uh, okay. yeah, you've already answered it. Obligation. <laughs> all right. Yeah. So um, I have one more Teddy question, I think. Sure. What, what okay. would his, if, if he would have gone for a third consecutive term, what would his wife have done? What would the you consequences know, have been for Teddy? Um, would she have left him? No, I, I think that um, uh, I did her a disservice in setting yeah. up that conflict. She okay. was actually much more supportive of uh, uh, his um, career than uh, than I uh, allowed in that book to set up the Maggie character. I created a little artificial tension there. A little, little friction. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, um, oh, go ahead, Aaron. I'm, um, he just, he really regretted not going for that third term, I think in the end, especially yes. since Taft double crossed him and yes, he wouldn't talk to him for 10 years and he didn't last much longer than that. Right. He he died in 1919. So, uh, yeah, they, they only reconciled. And I, I use that uh, term loosely, uh, about two, you know, two years before Teddy died. Maybe when they knew he was, when he knew he might be getting near the 
the end of his life, maybe. Um, well, he went on so far, as far as the wrong word for a South American adventure, but he and Kermit went down the Orinoco River, which is a tributary of the Amazon, and explored that right after uh, Teddy lost the 1912 election. And it damn near killed him. Uh, Kermit literally had to carry him out on his back. Uh, there's a great book um, uh, about that, uh, River of Doubt. And uh, but it took a physical toll on Roosevelt that he did not recover from. Mm. Um, oh, uh, I just wanted to let people know in case because we communicated this somewhat before, but um, I am a uh, while I work, I listen to audiobooks. And your book, I got it on Kindle, but what Philip discovered a little while ago is that if you have a book on Kindle or in the PDF format, there is a way to have it narrated. Mm-hmm. Now, it's a, uh, it's a very mechanical voice, and some of the interpretations of the actual words can be humorous. But <laughs> once you get into that and get used to it, it, it uh, opens up your, your audio uh, book options. It gets, it gets that's interesting because... That's how I read Cold Water Revenge, half audio and half... Uh, written well that's stunning because um i'm not aware uh, in, in the case of um honey teddy roosevelt the publisher controls the audio rights um and i haven't seen a royalty check in connection with any audio sales i and, think it just um it, it it interprets the text and computerizes uh, okay. it so um, it's, it's just a robot voice reading here that's um yeah that's a fascinating part of the publishing industry that to get a, a, a audio uh, a contract or get an yeah, audio and this is not an audio book we bought the okay. Kindle book um, and then I utilized a computerized voice and what happens is I pull it up on Kindle and then I take two fingers from the top and you pull it down and what right. it does is it reads the content off the screen. Yeah. Oh, okay. Cadence. Yeah. You know, it's like you yeah. think you think, oh, that's going to be terrible. It's like listening to you know something out mm-hmm. of Star Trek or something like that. You know, to listen to very robotic and impersonal, uh-huh. but it gets its own cadence. And actually, when it starts mispronouncing words, it actually gives those words more meaning. It it, you know, it makes you pay attention to them more. Yeah, it's like, oh, there yeah. it is again. You know, mm-hmm. like. Uh, what is it? The first book that we did this with was uh, a history book about uh, uh, George With. Yeah. George yeah. With. Yes. Who was. Um, he was Jefferson's mentor. He yeah. Was he was Jefferson's law, mentor. Uh, t- yeah. Uh, professor. The first yeah. law professor at the College of Will- William and Mary. Right. Signer of the Constitution. But uh, the whole time that we were listening to the book, it called him White instead of With because it's W H Y. T-E. Yeah. Okay. And so uh, what happened was, uh, I really think that when we spoke to the author of the book, she was a little bit annoyed that we kept mispronouncing the name, but we had been spending two <laughs> weeks listening to this book uh. <laughs> with white yeah. and it was with, and it was, you know, Suzanne yeah, Munson right. Suzanne Munson. Yeah. And it was, it's a very good book. It's very compelling. This man should definitely be celebrated historically as much as any president that we've ever, you know, celebrated. Um, I don't believe we would have well, the constitution. Jefferson's mentor says it all, I guess. Really. Yes, exactly. Yeah. He, if if not for this man, Jefferson would not have been the man he was. Right. That's that's well, a fact. We could go down that wormhole. I mean, because... he basically adopted him at the age of fourteen and and helped him become the adult. Yeah, Jefferson yeah. was a uh, his father died when he was young. Didn't have a male mentor in his life, and his, his mother didn't last. His yeah, effective father. Right. Right. So, mm-hmm. So do you have any um, Weird Al questions to ask before we sign off, Lisa? Aaron, I completely forgot to bring up Weird Al. Um, how do you feel about Weird Al, Jim? <laughs> I, I can't quite make him out. Uh, yeah. Maybe the size. Oh, yes. Oh, He's just oh, yeah. a Funko Pop. Yeah. That's yes. all. But, uh, but uh, yeah. She's, I, she's contractually obligated to mention Weird Al in every episode because they yeah. share a birthday. Well, yeah. well. I, I found the um, back and forth between Michael Jackson and Weird Al charming back in the day. And uh, 
yeah. <laughs> he, he's an American icon. There we I go. mean, at one point, Weird Al said that, uh, I believe I remember hearing this, that uh, that Michael Jackson, after he allowed him to use the set for uh, the one in the garage for Eat It. Yes. Off of Beat It, that he would contact Weird Al and offer to let him use his sets for the future. Uh, Philip is trying to show you the tickets that he is very proud of. He scored, we oh, scored tickets to Weird Al. To Weird Al uh, coming up in August in Dayton, Ohio. Yeah. Uh, and so, okay. not only that, we yeah. get to meet the weird one. That's be- that's After why they're VIP. Oh, beauty. Okay. Not to be Contractual obligation fulfilled. Facts. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, but like Weird Al, I've got a pretty good pantheon of birthday sharers. It's October twenty third. I've got Weird Al, uh, Ryan Reynolds, Dwight Yoakam, Johnny Carson, um, Ang Lee, all very accomplished people. And I got Trump. Yeah, Philip has uh, Trump. Yeah. All right. All <laughs> Flag right. Day. I wonder why he didn't advertise the fact that he was born on Flag Day as part of his campaign. I'm sure. I, I don't know. He probably didn't like how it sounded phonetically. He may not have known. Yeah, he may not know it's flag day. Not the most well read of our presidents. Taking that and turned it against him. Okay. All right. Got political at the end. All right. Yeah, right. I really enjoyed uh, Hunting Teddy Roosevelt. I thought it was well written. I enjoyed Coldwater Revenge. I appreciate it, Aaron. And now that we have it in our Amazon library, I'm going to go ahead and read it uh, Coldwater Revenge, probably. Mm -hmm. All right. All right. All right. Pleasure talking. Thank you very much and have a great week. All right. Thanks, you Phil too. and Lisa. Thanks, everybody. Bye now. We have social. Twitter. Yeah, uh-huh, pod. Instagram. Yeah, uh-huh, pod. Facebook. Yeah, uh-huh, pod. Website. www.yeah-uh-huh.com. So let us know. Hit us back. Have a great week.